I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Gather the family because this is a very special episode. I'm Rick and I'm alone today because recently I was able to sit down for a video call with none other than Academy Award winning director George Miller live from the Kennedy Miller Mitchell offices in Sydney, Australia. Now, for context, this interview took place on the evening of December 10th here in America, and if you want to get technical, it was also the morning of December 11th in Sydney. You've really got to love a 16-hour time difference. But I just want to say that I am incredibly humbled by this opportunity, and before I play the interview for you, I want to give a special thank you to Rachel for putting up with seven months of me emailing her very frequently about getting this interview. So thank you, Rachel, and I hope everybody listening enjoys the interview that you are about to hear. I hope you uh, had a nice drive over. Everything was nice and smooth, I'm assuming. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Sydney is turning a very Mad Max-ish in that it looks very apocalyptic. We've got bushfires, and the city is shrouded in smoke. And every day, the sun is a red sun all right through the day. So it's a little disturbing because, you know, we have, like a lot of places, climate denying basically politicians, and yet it's happening right in front of our eyes. And not just anecdotally, but obviously the statistics are very, very clear. But anyway, that's how it is. So Sydney, you know, which is a, a very beautiful city, but right now it looks like the end of Famine. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I love that you've got a Thunderdome poster right behind you because right behind me, I've got my Laserdisc copy of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome hanging below the Laserdisc copy of Road Warrior. That was sent to me by someone that we had on as a guest on the podcast. They had them lying around and they said, Rick, I imagine you'd want to have these. And I was like, you're dang tootin' I would. Yes. Yeah, well, this happens to be Doug Mitchell's office, but it's the quietest office that he's got that there, yeah. But I, um, look, I've got to say how much I not only enjoy your podcast, what you and Julia are doing, I'm very honoured, really, to see how much understanding you have of the film. I mean, it's a way for me to go back and revisit all the work we did and see it through your eyes and say, yes, my God, we got most of your reading of the film is surprisingly accurate. And that's a big delight for me because, you know, this is a film told on the run. You've got basically a hundred and whatever, 14 minutes of story and it's on the run. And one of the big things, one of the big risks of it, it was going to be very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. We couldn't really guess how much the audience was going to apprehend on the way. We couldn't stop for exposition. And one of the big pleasures of the movie, yeah, the response of the movie, has been that people read a lot of the subtext, a lot of the allegory underneath it. And I think that's why it's sticking around somewhat in people's minds, which is, you know, I've got to say, it's very gratifying when that's your basic job to try to do that. Anyway, look. I'm very grateful. I've so much enjoyed listening to your podcast. It's really odd, isn't it? When you're sort of listening to, to a podcast to tell you what people think about your film in such minute detail. A peculiar task. I mean, what drove you to do it? I'm really interested to know. Admittedly, I was inspired by two guys named Pete and Alex who have been doing this format of podcast with the Star Wars movies for several years now. Yeah. They got inspired to do it by a couple of guys that were watching The Big Lebowski one minute <laughs> at a time. But obviously Star Wars caught up in a way that The Big Lebowski never really could. And right. so several years down the road, I wanted to get into the game. And I thought, well, what is the one series that 
every time it was on in reruns on a Saturday or Sunday, what is the one series I always wanted to watch? And it was Mad Max. And it was the same thing for Julia. She loves Beyond Thunderdome. And I really liked the movie after going through it one minute at a time. I love it even more. It's really hard to look at the series in retrospect and pick out one that is like the least out of the list. I mean, we have to list things because yeah. it's the internet. The opportunity arose for us to take a look at it one minute at a time. And I was like, oh, we've got to do it with this series just because I've read so many things about your process and the things that you put your actors through as far as drumming up these backstories. And how could we not give that its proper due? Yeah. You know, when Mark Sexton, who, you know, did the storyboards on the film, when he mentioned it, he said, oh, take a listen. And I listened to it. I thought, oh, what can I, what can I learn? You know, I'm not going to learn anything new. I'm just going to get the same stuff back that I've been hearing. But I found myself getting quite addicted. It's a little bit, I don't know how to describe it. It's a little bit like, look, just to make it really clear, and you'll hear this, from just about every filmmaker. You never go back. Once it's done, you can't go back and look at the film. That's been my history. And, you know, I've read it about Hitchcock. I've read it about everybody. The moment the film's done, it's done. And I always found it very difficult to go back and watch the films that I've made, unless a decade had passed, because, because basically there's nothing else you can do you put so much of yourself into the film, you're kind of spent at the end of the process. And most of all, I think you're confronted with the things that maybe didn't work very well. And you've learned that anyway, you know that in the process of the movie, so you hope that you can sort of craft, can improve in the, in the next one, one way or the other. But this experience has been very, very unusual because it was, um, I learned a lot about not only this particular movie, but about the process. It confirmed to me in a way that before podcasts couldn't quite have been done in that way. It confirmed to me that we read films not just on the surface, but we're picking up stuff as we go. We're interpreting the film on the run. It's kind of like speed. We speed reading movies today compared to what it would have been a couple of decades or half a century ago. We actually are able to do that. And I'm just astonished by how much, how much is picked up. I mean, Julia, she's able to read so much stuff into it. And it's accurate. You know, I, I have to go through details. But I would say... It's 95 up to 99% accurate. The, the, the assumptions that are made are really, really, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised. It's like, I'm thinking. Anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> I will gladly take that assessment because I know we've come up with some real off the wall and really oddball assumptions back when we got to the end of Thunderdome and suddenly we're having that amazing miniature shot flying through Sydney Harbor. And I raised the question, what happened to the ocean? And that just spiraled out into all sorts of malarkey. <laughs> but I bring that up because I wanted to get into a lot of the questions that I sent ahead. Sure. And with arguably all of the final three movies because that first 1979 one there's a lot of grass there's a lot of green in that movie and there's actually if i remember right a surprising amount of green in road warrior but i digress we've seen a lot of red dirt australian outback in these movies and thankfully there was you know the crack in the earth and thunderdome but where fury road was so brown and i know you don't like to talk about movies before they're done but sure. uh, is there an environment or a setting that you would like Max to visit? For example, maybe him driving through a dried out coral reef like they did in the avalanche game. It's interesting. I considered that in the past, actually part of Fury Road. But then 
the science doesn't hold up. I mean, you've got to understand that the Mad Max movies evolved with culture. Yeah. The first Mad Max basically started out of, without going into the details on it, started out of my, A, my interest in action chase movies, which I claim were pure cinema. That's where the language was discovered pre-sound, where you could do stuff on the screen that you couldn't experience in a sporting arena. It was stuff that only could be put together, like the Buster Keaton, the Harold Lloyd and so on. You could only experience in the cinema in the way that the action was done and the way the syntax developed. So that was one thing. Second thing is dealing with the nature of how we deal with violence and so on, mainly because you know, I was experiencing it at the time being a, a doctor in, in emergency in, in a big city hospital. And the interesting thing about it was we didn't have the budget to make it in the present day. We couldn't block off streets. We couldn't fill the, the busy streets with extras like French Connection and those kind of movies at which inspired, you know, beautifully made movies and so on. We couldn't do that. So it occurred to me, if we made it a few years from now and made it dystopian, we could use rundown buildings which would cost us nothing. We could take empty back streets and so on. And we had to shoot it within 30 miles of the centre of the city of Melbourne so we didn't have to put our cast and crew in hotels and so on. All those things fed into Mad Max 1. Mad Max 2 came out of something completely uh, differently. I, I was much more aware. I couldn't understand why Mad Max was such a success in many, many countries. And that led me to understand, wait a minute, it wasn't because I was a particularly clever filmmaker. It was because unconsciously Max was an archetype, a Joseph Campbell-like archetype. And that led to Mad Max 2, where it was much more conscious. I mean, he was a Western hero. You know, the French called the movie, this is uh, Road Warrior, they called it a Western on wheels, it fell into all those tropes and so on. Much, much more aware of it. But it was, came very, very clearly out of the oil crisis in the 70s. A city like Melbourne, Australia, a beautiful, very easygoing city where there was no gas at the gas stations. There was one gas station that was allowing emergency workers, doctors, nurses, first responders to get gas. There were massive queues around the block. And it took 10 days for the first shot to be fired in anger. Someone fired a gun in the air because it had someone and we don't have guns in, in Australia to the extent that you do in the United States. And I thought, wait a minute, if that's happened in 10 days, no one was hurt, I know there were fights, what happens if it's 100 days? What's happened if it's 10 years? And that led to Mad Max 2. Mad Max 3, I wasn't, you know, I mean, there was, there was talk of climate change, but I didn't really think about it. I just loved the image of Sydney, a great city, the only really iconic thing we have in the city is the Opera House. So the, the image of the Opera House now still standing, but the place is dried up. That was the image. I didn't think of the science behind it. <laughs> uh, it seems as though that there's going to be global warming and already we see the sea rising. We're much more aware of it in Australia because most of the population lives on the coast. So anyway, the point being, I don't think the way things are going is going to be a question of the world dry. However, there are places in the world where the lack of rain, like lakes high, high up, there are places in the world where you do see the skeletons of ships lying on dry sand and so on. And there was going to be in Fury Road, way out in the desert, off in the distance, we were going to put a big ship which was going to be just the carcass of the ship. And the idea was you just saw it in passing and they, they, they glimpsed out at it. And we, I remember we did just a very, very preliminary CG and I thought it sort of overeated the pudding. Uh, it was interesting in that you might say, oh, oh, you know, you might be interested for it if it was a game to go out and visit that and see 
who inhabited that place. But it's kind of distracted from the movie. It was getting to the third act, and, you know, it distracted. So my answer is, I don't think the science holds up that, that the oceans, particularly Sydney Harbour, will dry. It's more likely to the other way. Unless global warming gets so much, so bad that the, the, the water evaporates, but it's got to go somewhere. So it has to be. Anyway, that's a long answer. But that, um, so I don't know. I, I don't know. Even though it's a great image, dry coral reefs, I, I don't think it'll be going past. But you never know. I mean, I might be sitting there trying to figure something out and say, oh, a dry coral reef might pop into I can understand wanting to stick with the visual aesthetic that you've established because despite our conversation on the podcast about, oh, well, if, if you go seven miles a day for 160 days, you can go from Alice Springs to like Taiwan or something like that. Yes, yes. I don't think I could necessarily imagine a Mad Max set somewhere that's not on Australia. Like I know you filmed in Namibia, but the setting is still very much focused on Australia. Exactly. Interestingly enough, in Thunderdome, we shot in what is a dried seabed, but it's in the centre of Australia. There was a central Australian sea, I don't know how many millennia ago, but that was, it's a scene where you could see cars come up off a small platter, that that was a small island in what was a, a sea. But again, that's just, that's not, to do with environmental change, it's, it's to do with geological change that happened. I can't, can't remember, but I'm, I'm thinking well before man existed on the planet. And it was basically the big continental shifts over time and so on. So, you know, it's possible, but yeah, but, but not at the moment. Is there any locations in Australia that you've had on your wish list to go visit and shoot some scenes in that you haven't gotten to yet? Well, there was, they're not sort of a wish list, but again, on Thunderdome, we wanted to shoot the canyon, the so-called crack in the earth where the kids were, in a place called Katajuta. It's near uh, Uluru, once known as Air Rock in the centre. And they're beautiful sort of rock formations. And we wanted to shoot there a wonderful location manager, uh, George Mannix, went out there with our storyboards and spoke to, spoke to the Indigenous elders and he told them the story, showing our storyboards. And at the end of it, they got up, uh, they, most of them were English-speaking, they got up and they did a dance for him in exchange for the story he told them. Mm -hmm. And they said, yes, you can come here. And I remember two things that they said, he asked, you know, thank you, why? He said, because your story reminds us of some of our stories. <laughs> and the other thing they said was, um, think of this place like you do a cathedral uh, or a great place of worship. And it was interesting because I didn't really understand it at the time. But we could not have menstruating women going there. There was some deep atomistic sort of social or, or, or religious belief that you see now in, in modern cultures where men and women are segregated. The interesting thing about Indigenous culture in Australia, it's the longest extant culture, continuous culture. Anyway, we ended up not shooting there, not for that reason, but because it became too technically difficult. It's a very fragile desert. And it meant that all the vehicles had to be vacuumed so that all the mud and anything caught up in the wheels, any seed, any foreign seed that came in could, could really interrupt the desert. Even the cuffs of your trousers, when they had the trouser cuffs, they had to be vacuumed so you didn't have any small seeds or whatever that could, that could basically weed out the place and destroy the ecology of it. So we said, oh, that's just way too much. And then just when we were about to make that decision, I remember this was way back in the 80s, McDonald's made a commercial where they flew over the rock domes and then dissolved to a Big Mac. And, they, <laughs> and it was just so sort of lacking in respect that we said, no, we're not going to go in there. 
and the, the sort of all those things combined for us and have a shooting there. And I don't have a scene in mind to do there. But that's, I would have loved to have shot that. It's so beautiful. It's quite a, the, the red that changes colour with the sun. Uh, it, it, and it's, it's, you know, you are in obviously a very red, uh, ancient place that has a lot of meaning to the people that are there. Yeah, you've really worked with some amazing cinematographers and got some breathtaking shots across the entire series, even back in the late 70s when you were working on that first one. You've been working with so many people and directing them in such a way that I can only imagine how it would have looked if you'd been able to get around the logistics because it yeah. sounded really complicated to go out that yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that's weighed really heavily on us throughout the entire series is how oftentimes the casts that you're working with are fairly small and a lot of them get names, but right with the first movie, a couple of people stood out like you had Kim Sullivan as the girl in the Chevy and Kathleen McKay in the second movie is just labeled as victim. It really stood out to us in the fourth movie with all of the Vuvulini just being caught underneath one umbrella. And I have to wonder, is that a side effect of having to work within a 90 to 120 minute frame that you're not able to do all of those side things where, okay, this is this person, this is this person, and everybody gets a proper name? Going back to, to the first Mad Max, and I think Kim Sullivan, who was the girl who was apparently raped when the car was smashed up, and I think she was called Girl in Chevy. Or yeah, uh, that's and, what my notes say, at least. <laughs> yeah, and, and then in Mad Max 2, Max and, and the Jarek captain look through binoculars and telescope and watch like, as a couple of their car gets rolled, uh, trying to escape the compound. As a car rolls, and then we watch through the telescope as she gets raped and killed, and she's just called victim. Thinking back on it at the time, two things. I remember reading screenplays that Walter Hill famously wrote, a company called Haiku Screenwriting, and I always admired screenplays that, that basically were very, very minimalist. Mm -hmm. they, they sort of reflected what the movies do. Big elaborate descriptions are very hard to read in a screenplay because in a movie they're there, they're apparent. Anyway, so there are many characters you don't call characters in that ex more extreme world by the name. They currently call Sam and John and Mary. They are designated by what they do. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it, you, know, you ask a question, it's, it's probably treating them as casually as the, and, 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 and maybe dis as disrespectfully as the characters in the movies do. But with the Vuvulini and, and, and the Five, bri the five Brides, in Fury Road, they all had names, but they weren't, I, I mean, and Herod wasn't just Anne Herod, it, almost in a medieval way, because it's sort of forward to the past. We go back, even though it's in, in a dystopian future, we go back to very, very elemental behaviours that you might have got in past times, so medieval times. So people are designated apart, uh, so she's called Anne Herod the Splendid, or, or Toast the Knowing. And then, but the Bobolini, they had names as well. And I think most of the key ones are credited, like uh, the Keeper of the Seeds mm -hmm. and, and, and so on. I think going to your larger uh, question, how can you fill out, uh, are you asking, how can you, should we give it more backstory with, in the telling of the film uh, than we did? Is that what you're asking? Well, I can't help but wonder, like, if you weren't constrained by the two-hour runtime, for example, with Fury Road, there's so much depth to these worlds that you create. Yes. If you were, say, approached by an HBO or Amazon or a Disney Plus and said, make a 10-hour epic instead of a two-hour movie, would you then be able to pour all of those ideas and realize them, take all of the work, and then put it on the screen? The answer is yes, because it's long form, and, but it's also no, 
It's a really interesting question to explore because it really goes to what the nature of film is. Film is like music. It's basically, I won't say constrained by time, but it's dictated to by time. It's in a sense tyrannized by time. Film is linear in terms of the movie moves at 24 frames a second or 25 or 60 frames a second, whatever, however many frames. And the second is finite. And we measure time very, like, ridiculously, specifically through nuclear clocks and so on. So you have to work within that constraint in the same way you do music. I mean, if someone's playing uh, any kind of music and in the middle of it, we stop and say, do you realise that that chord is such and such a chord and go back into the history of that chord and what it meant and when it was used in certain types of music and songs and it was what's called the devil's chord or all this. Or, or, or. You go back into, into the hypertext, as it were, and go down and, and look at it. You can't do that. I mean, you can, but it's not going to be, it's not going to sweep the audience along in the experience. Right. It might be a really great lecture for musicologists or people studying music, it's the same thing with film. You don't have that. However, it's really, really important that you do all that work, all that subtext, all that backstory on the characters. Because if it's not there, the audience is not going to be persuaded by your film or the story you're telling. It's just going to be surface. You'll get that sense that, Oh, they, those, those characters just came out of their trailers and they came on set and they rehearsed something and then it was basically shot. And that costume they're wearing and those objects they're holding were basically designed on paper by very talented concept artists and they got them, but no one really knows what the function is and they didn't grow up organically. And basically, we had to take a very anthropological approach to particularly the Fury Road. We had to understand where everything came from, every vehicle. There had to be a back a backstory to it, and mainly for it to be designed. But look, for instance, if you watch a documentary on some remote culture, you're going to see a lot of stuff in that documentary, unless it's a very, very detailed study of a particular culture where every artifact is somehow basically scientifically assessed and so on, that's going to be fairly dry. Uh, but if you, if you watch those documentaries, you're going to see behaviour of, say, some indigenous a- African tribe, you know, or, or, and you'll see incredible costumes and weapons and so on, and you'll see rituals that you won't understand, but you know that the people in that documentary they're deeply steeped in it. It's a long tradition and it's evolved over time. We had to take the same approach on Fury Road. It's not important that I know what the spraying of the silver, the chrome on someone's teeth is, but it's important that the actors know that, they, that you know, Nicholas Holt knew what that meant. Yeah. And he had to have his own his own, uh, you know, I've got my theories about it, but it's not important that I do, but, but they had to, for, for the film to be convincing. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I love the idea that filmmaking is analogous to a song. You take something that is universally beloved, like Journeys Don't Stop Believing. If you stop in that first line and explain that, well, you know, South Detroit is technically in Canada and all this other stuff, it, ruins the tempo ah, okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> well look look i think it's the this is what i'm trying to say this is what what was so confirming or, or reaffirming about this experience with fury road the very thing that i was trying to talk about earlier there is a poetic dimension to it and it sort of tested the theory the whole idea of fury road was to tell basically a very linear two-hour chase, as people often describe it as a U-turn, to going out, finding, not finding what you're meant to, and having to go back to the place where you started at and hopefully find a new dispensation when you, get, you create a new dispensation. And it had to be on the run. Mm-hmm. And the whole 
exercise was to try to understand how much people could pick up on the run, how much of the story of the characters, and trust the audience to be reading, reading it as accurately as possible and taking what they needed to know. A more traditional way would have been to have long expository scenes, but they're not inherently dramatic. The music doesn't carry you along. The progression of notes and chords and so on, the visual language doesn't carry you along. Which means that you're relying on the poetic dimension, that something is offered up and the you as a member of the audience just naturally are interpreting according to your own worldview. And going back to someone, I'm not sure if I got get the quote right, but someone asked Freddie Mercury about the meaning of Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, and they put forward their theory. And he said, if you see it, dear, it's there. In other words, it's up to your interpretation. The actors playing the characters, the world we created, have their own way of understanding. It probably coincides with the way I understand it, but also the audience is invited to make those associations and the resonances are there. And I must say, I think the theory sort of worked that people can pick up all the analogy and, and so on. Look, I, I often say you're looking for as much iceberg under the tip as possible. If you're just looking at the tip of the iceberg, you pretty soon forget it. It can be quite dazzling material, but if it doesn't have all that subtext, subtext roiling underneath and inviting you to sort of recognise it with, from your own observations of the world. Mm-hmm. When someone has water, for instance, and and the Morton Joe lets the wretched below have the water for a short time just to give them a taste. That's basically a you know, pretty clear analogy to anyone in a dominance hierarchy who controls resources. And we see it right through history, and we see it today in virtually every so-called democracy. And it's not something that is sort of made up. It basically arises from the world around us. Because uh, Fury wrote fell down a couple of times. You know, we were going to do it way back in mm-hmm. 2001, 9-11 happened, it went down, and we got to the Happy Feet movies and so on. Kept off. But halfway through that, in about 2007, I remember being in India and seeing that lake, you know that lake hotel? Gosh, I can't remember exactly where it is now, but it was completely dry. And the elephants were in the bottom of the lake and kids were playing soccer at the bottom of the lane. I remember talking to this guy and he said, he said, yes, up in Kashmir, we're fighting the water wars. It looks like a, you know, an ideological war between Pakistan and India, but basically we're fighting the water wars. And the moment I heard that, I changed the story <laughs> to be water. Mm-hmm. Now, in the meantime, in this very state, in Australia, you've got to remember Australia is essentially a desert in the centre. It's not sand dunes, all of it, but it's a fragile ecology. And politically, we are fighting water wars. There's great rivers, basically the various states are fighting for irrigation rights, and now it's catastrophic. There's massive loss of the fish, and the ecology is being... We are literally fighting a kind of water wars. I mean... At the time in Kashmir, they were shooting each other. In Australia, it's a lot of angry political discussion about what we're doing to this fairly fragile ecology. And and it's very ideological, you know. So it's really coming back to bite us in the bum, as they say. Uh, It really is. Yeah. Those sort of things uh, you can read into the film depending on your own sort of worldview. Sorry for my long answers, but that's, that's what I think that you're trying to do. So, so it's on the run. Right. You cannot. Now, I'd love to do a movie where you could, you could actually stop and discuss it, but it wouldn't be much of an experience. Spiraling off of the idea that there is so much underneath the surface, the idea of the iceberg, I've heard talk about a, quote, Mad Max Bible, not the YouTube page that I know we've talked about on the podcast, but an actual 
300 page concept art and production book that exists somewhere. And I know we've got the amazing materials from Abby Bernstein's The Art of Mad Max Fury Road, and we've got Mark Sexton's comic books. But do you ever foresee a time where you will take all of that production stuff and release it more to the public? Or is that just your safeguarded secrets? It's not secret. I don't think <laughs> it exists, but it exists in such a chaotic, random form yeah. that I don't think it would have much meaning. For instance, it's, uh, you know, there's mood books, as they call them, just references of, you know, what the war boys might, might be having. It might have pictures of people who might have scarification because... Nux had scarifications on his body, people who paint themselves in white, all that sort of reference, all different weaponry across from medieval times and so on, all sorts of images of cars. I mean, one of the things we did with the cars, for instance, vehicles now, the modern vehicles that we have, which depend on all sorts of technologies that are too sophisticated, particularly computer technologies, they, they would not survive. No. <laughs> so they had to go to something much, much more, much more mechanical, something that somebody who has basic mechanical skill could. Your survival depends on keeping that kind of thing going. So the cars we went to were those that, that had hard bodies. There was no crumpled technology no one thought there were no seatbelts, there were no airbags. They probably wouldn't work anyway, the airbags. It went back to that other time. And there was another thing driving the aesthetic of it as well, which was very important. It was kind of, you know, everybody in designing had to work to the sort of mantra that just because it's the wasteland, it doesn't mean people can't make beautiful things. Two reasons for that. I don't think I could stand to watch a movie where everything looked like a junk, random junkyard. But it's not how human behaviour works anyway. Even in or every case where people have limited resources, early man doing cave paintings, we're just taking different colour rocks and, and doing work. If you go to a refugee camps, they're not junkyards. They Inside those tents, they make the most, they find bits and pieces and turn it into the most beautiful, beautiful thing. If you go to, you know, major villages in Africa where they just take fence wire and make it into the most beautiful toys like motorbikes and things. Someone gave me a rose from Africa, a bunch of three roses from Africa, and the petals were made of shape from Coca-Cola cans. <laughs> And the stems were barbed wire. Yeah. And they were exquisite. The repurposing of objects also requires some strong aesthetic. That was another thing that drove uh, Fury Road. And it was, I was much more aware of that on Fury Road than I was on the other day. I think it's pretty safe to say that when you look at the entire post-apocalyptic genre, that a lot of people have, uh, I'm not going to say stolen wholesale, but paid veiled homage to the production design of Road Warrior. Does that feel a little gratifying to know that people have latched on to that idea and that you pretty much made that possible? Well, it, it is in the sense that, it, that it, it proves that there was some accuracy to it. Uh-huh. That, that sort of so-called poetic dimension I'm talking to you was rooted in something. It seemed to have a resonance. It seemed to be interpreted pro- properly and so yes that's a that's always a good good feeling i i, I think it's really uh, yeah particularly i see it in games also in graphic novels uh, which, mm. which i sort of always love to see so to the extent that people uh you know were able to enjoy that and saw some sort of meaning into it uh, that is very gratifying of course and look a film doesn't exist in isolation. It's very much in its historical context. I keep on saying to people, look, what worked 20 years ago or what worked 10 years ago, it might have been brilliant back then, but it is now 
and risk of being cliche, you must be aware that we are collectively in a process of cultural, cultural evolution. And unless you recognise that in your work, it's li- likely to be sort of static. It's like, to, uh, now, that's not to say that something can't be retrograde and, and make a virtue of it, but, but you've got to be really aware of it. And one of the big things when we did, when we did Fury Road, there was a lot of pressure, not, not only, you know, even from, the, from people working around me, to make it kind of hark back to the early movies too much, too much. Basically, be re, uh, what's the word, uh, remakes. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if we did that, we would be doomed. I mean, and, and not only that, me personally, there's no point in doing that. It's harking back to the past. There has to be, there has to be a, a, an advancement. Now, the difference between what happened back 30 years ago and what happened, you know, when we were shooting Fury Road was enormous. Everything had changed. The audiences had changed, meaning that we, as I said earlier, we speed read movies. We definitely can. We've seen much more moving image in our lives from when we're young. We really can grab onto things much, much more quickly than we could have. So the way we read movies, the way the technology had changed to such a phenomenal degree. It was astonishing. So, you know, to be able to take, look, on the, on the simplest thing, when we did, an, I remember when we did explosions on Mad Max 1, we had really big reels of film. We had to, to have a 2,000 foot of celluloid. I don't know, I should know this now, but just say it gives you 10 minutes. It gives you 10 minutes for explosion. Mm-hmm. And you, oh, 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 but you're shooting it at slow motion, so you, Let's say you're shooting at 96 frames a second. Mm-hmm. Now, it gives you very little time to start the camera and then get whoever started the camera out of shot and to safety before you activate, say, the explosion. Now, that sounds like, okay, that's doable, but that's a logistical, a major logistical problem. Yeah. And if anything gets interrupted, one of your key cameras could run it out of celluloid just as the explosion's happening or before. That's all gone now because if you're shooting digitally, you can run your camera, you can just turn it on and you've got 45 minutes at least before you have to think about changing the car. So even that, even if something simple as that was a big deal. The other thing is you can put your actors in harm's way, supposedly, because you have them always on cables, mm-hmm. very, very easy to erase. Even simpler than that, I always used to watch action movies, even when I was young, as a kid, and I always used to know, notice the number of tyre tracks when they do about three or four takes mm-hmm. on a car doing a, a skid turn uh, and so on, and you can tell how many takes they, they do. <laughs> now, shooting in the desert, in the sand, we could have had just endless tire tracks, but we were able to erase you know, anything that wasn't necessary. Mm. Now, in the past, you would have had to stop, you would have had to either move to the side of where you did that first shot, uh, or the second take, each subsequent take, or you had to sort of drag, you know, big sort of bags of stuff to sort of smooth it out for your next take. Nowadays, you just shoot again. And so all of that made a huge difference. We were able to do things. Just one other example. On Thunderdome, there was a, a dust storm. We were shooting out at a place called Kugabini. And they come along, you know, quite rarely, one of those massive dust storms. And I remember we looked up and it was coming. And I remember saying, look at me, take the, the plane up and fly, not, don't fly into it because you know what's going to happen, but fly on the edge of it. And we did. And we shot that sequence. Now, we had a dust storm, you know, in Fury Road where we could do whatever we wanted. We didn't have to wait. It wasn't even written in the script. We just saw it coming mm-hmm. and decided to do it. So filmmaking had changed enormously and the culture had changed and the way we refilmed 
So this film had to, in some way, take all of that into account. It's funny to think about the changes because you think back to Road Warrior and you've got that Virginia Hay-shaped dummy that gets sucked underneath the wheels as she's yeah. hanging off. And then in Fury Road, you've got your stuntman leaping off the back of the tanker and you see the behind-the-scenes pictures. You've got the gimbal and all the, the wires and you just paint off all of that. Yes, and it's yes. mind-blowing to see the difference. Yes. Oh, yeah, that way. I, I, I always thought the... Yeah, when you, see, when you see that dummy, it looks like a dummy, doesn't it? It's a little floppy. And just the way the legs were and, and so on. And it wasn't even a, it didn't even have the correct body weight. I will tell you, on Fury Road, I remember talking to Guy Norris, the second unit director and, and the mm. sucker and, and, and the special effect crew. And I said, let's make up some dummies and let's give them the correct body weight and give them elastic cord so that their, even their arms and, and, and so on would move with, with some sort of that more natural resistance. And I said, let's put them in, you know, whenever there's, a, whenever there's something going on, let's put them in. And if they don't work and they look like dummy, like, for instance, Virginia Hayes dummy, then we can erase them and, you know, we, we, we can comp in someone else doing something. Now... In two of those cases, it really pulled off and it really worked. I don't know if you remember, there was a thing called the excavator where mm -hmm. we had that big backhoe on or whatever. When that falls, we put one of the characters, uh, that was a dummy that flies through the air. It was put on with Velcro and as it flipped, as it flipped the Velcro released and he flew through the air. And that was... Because he's, the, he's exactly a normal human body weight. And, and so it behaved naturalistically enough where we didn't have to do anything to, uh, to it, except when after it hit the ground, the way it sort of rolled. Yeah. So we only took a few frames after, you know, as it hit the ground. So again, we still were using old school methods uh, mm. to, to, to make it work. I will admit, I did not realize that the war boy getting launched off the excavator arm that it was a life dummy. I thought it was just like a composite or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, no. It's it amazing. Yeah. So that was me learning uh, <laughs> from all those years before. Do you think doing those animated movies, the Happy Feet movies between Thunderdome and Fury Road, do you think that really expanded your idea of what a computer could do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, look, since the advent of sound, the digital dispensation has been the most significant thing that's happened to cinema because it makes it so much more malleable, much more plastic. Before, basically, you couldn't do much between the cuts, but now you can actually take the frames and play a lot more with it. And I learned that from, you know, I was always interested in uh, what technology could do. It was one of the things that helped drive the story. I, the first days of me, it took us a long, long time to have the ability to simply make an animal talk. I mean, there were animatronics, but to make them talk in a way that was convincing enough, we had to, you know, that, that, that was just at the beginning of people using CGI for, for movies. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, Andrew Leslie, who shot that movie, went on to shoot The Lord of the Rings. And, I remember the film, it came back from the first Lord of the Rings and showed me the first motion capture with Gollum, Andy Serkis and Gollum. Mm -hmm. And I'd had the story of Happy Feet, and the moment I saw that, I said, ah, we can make the penguins dance. <laughs> a dancer, a tap dancer particularly, spends a whole lifetime developing the, the neurology and the muscle memory, whatever you call it, to be able to tap dance like that. Mm -hmm. No matter how good an animator might be, they can never achieve that. But we can motion capture it and suddenly. So that sort of stuff was really valuable. You get comfortable with what the technology can do. But probably the most important thing was it proved the notion that there is only one perfect place for the camera at any given time in a movie. 
it was really interesting to me that you could take, say, a scene from Happy Feet and just by changing the camera, the angle of the camera and the cutting pattern, you had exactly the same performance, exactly the same lighting, you had everything precisely the same. But depending on where you put the camera after the event, you could change the whole tone of the scene. And I learned that. I proved that for myself on Happy Feet because I'd take a scene and it wasn't very expensive to move the camera or to change the cut. It's just sitting you know, with, a, with a friend in front of a the computer. There's only basically two of them and, and then rendering it out. And it was quite striking. So by the time we got back to Fury Road, I was just very, very aware of how careful you had to be where the camera was. You can't just put a lot of random cameras on something and hope that you'll find it in the cut. There has to be a very, very strong causality one shot to the other. Now, it doesn't mean that, you, that you're going to get it right every time and there's so much, particularly with Fury Road, there was so much work to do post, uh, you know, in the, in the editing. It was a... Ma- I, I always had this image of this movie of being like a massive Rubik's Cube, as big as one of those gym balls, you know, those big plastic, the big bouncy balls you get in the gym. Yeah. Imagine a cube, Rubik's Cube with tiny, thousands of tiny <laughs> and, 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 and that big, that's how I have these little fantasies. That's what the, the movie's doing. It. And, 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 and that, that's what cutting was like. And I'm just so grateful to Margaret, you know, my partner, Margaret Cecil, because she just had the, the brain power to do it. I don't know how. Have you ever done, have you ever done a Rubik's Cube? I have in the past. I know that there's a trick to it, but I've never mastered it. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I've tried it. I've never it. Yeah, look, the animations taught me a lot. Mm. I think with animation, you can think everything through. It's like extreme slow motion live action filmmaking, but you've got time to think a lot more than you do on the set. When you're shooting live action, particularly, I'm sure it's like any kind of film, it's a little bit like being a a basketball player and so on. You've done all the drilling, you've practiced, you've really honed all, you've taken your basic talent and really drilled it. But during the game, whatever the game plan is, in the moment, you haven't got, it, it's purely reflex response. You don't have time to think, mm. should I do this or should I do that? You just work out of the intuitive reflex response. And I think it's a little bit like that with live action on the set. You don't have time to sit and consider anything. You've just got to go off out of your gut feeling, you know, you know, how do we adjust that performance? How do we do that? Where do we put the camera and so on? Despite all the planning, that's also the biggest difference between animation and, and live action. Julie and I have discussed specifically in one of the recent episodes that we dropped, our questioning whether Max has a shelf life as a character or can he just exist indefinitely? There was talk about how back when Mel was on board to do the role, the idea that at the end of the story, he would find solace, he would settle down. And then when you brought in Tom, that at the end of that movie, he wanders back out into the wasteland. Do you think Max can just exist indefinitely? Do you think you'll ever foresee him settling down? You obviously think about the characters and what might happen to them. But this film, I mean, obviously can't be chronological. And he's an archetype. Mm-hmm. Way back from the beginning, when it was first shown in Japan, they saw him as a wandering samurai. In Scandinavia, they saw him as a lone Viking wandering in the landscape. And, and the French were the first to say that these are Westerns on, Western on wheels. So mm-hmm. you've got that Western archetypal. It's a, it's a very reduced world. Elemental is the word. They, they become very ele- elemental words where you can play out this story. So... Because the four films were never conceived as a continuous saga, I think the answer is he's wandering the wasteland. There's not a a chronological narrative to his life. In a sense, there can't be. Had Mel played the the character, 
uh, you know, he was 21 when he played the first one. Mm. And uh, had he played the character, he's obviously an older man. Now, I don't, the story was never making, never accounting for that. You know, there were no lines like, what was it from Lethal Weapon? You know, I'm too old for this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was never anything like that. He was just, he was just the character. But when, as it got delayed, I mean, God, it got delayed so many times that it, it, it got to the point. Plus, Mel was having a lot of turbulence in his life and yeah. even public, publicly. And physically, it wasn't going to be. It, 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 they were tough movies. Tom Hardy is extremely athletic. He's one of those people with really quick reflexes, like really quick. You do those tricks where you hold a, a note and you try to drop it through the fingers. Mm. He could do that. Mel Gibson actually had that too. He, could, he was very, very quick. A lot of athletes do it. And, and Tom had that. A lot of agility and, and stuff which was necessary. So, look, the, the answer is he goes on, I guess a little bit like the James Bond movies. I mean, mm. if, you know, whoever plays him doesn't age within the stories. The, the world changes according to the times that the basic characters are saying. It's nice to think that Max can just exist as an element of the wasteland. Like, yes, he is a man, but he's not just a man. He's more of an idea. I've never thought of it that way, but that's emerging. Many people are sort of choosing to see it that way. And I must say, it makes sense to me. It reminds me of the advertisements, I think, for the first movie, where the voiceover would say, pray he's out there somewhere. And if Max is just out there wandering the wasteland, you can count on him always being somewhere out there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, obviously, Max wasn't the only star of the movie. People love Furiosa. And I think there was also some discussion about the possibility of her getting more stories. When you think about the Mad Max series, would you ever consider like doing... Star Wars style spin-offs where you've got Furiosa, a Mad Max story? It's something that you find yourself thinking about automatically. I'm, I'm not thinking strategically about let's do a spin-off or anything like that. Yeah. What happens is that you, without you having really much control over it, the characters are there in your head or they, and I'm sure this happens a, a, a lot of times. And, and the reason why it's particularly, why it happens with Mad Max is that they're allegorical. They basically, as I said before, you're basically going forward to the past, but really it's about the present. In other words, for, for people who, and I know it's come up several times in your podcast, about what's the timeline of Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> Without trying to look at all the films, this is the basic way I looked at the film. I said, imagine next Wednesday, all the bad things, you, you probably heard me, you know, or I probably said this before, so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say it again, as if this is like I'm saying different stuff. Okay. So basically what I say to myself is, or I say to everybody, is imagine next Wednesday that all the bad things that you see in the news come to pass all at once. So you get financial crisis, you get the, the power grid goes down, you get the climate catastrophe, or a distant nucleus skirmish somewhere. All of these things happen all at once. And you just have to start from that moment. What would you do? What would actually happen? What would be the first thing that you would do when you couldn't get refrigeration? How would you keep your family and loved ones alive, what would you do? Who would be more likely to survive? What skills do you have? You start with that. And I say, if you go, like for Fury Road, it's about that having happened, you go forward to about 45 years into the future and you basically try to track the whole thing, like every character, with that sort of backstory in mind. The interesting thing that happens and this is why they keep, this is a long explanation as to what, what's happening in terms of, of where it might go. Basically what happens is you go, sure you go into the post-apocalyptic world, mm -hmm. 
45 years in the future. But you go back to two basic things, the kind of pretty, pretty much universal behavior that goes back, uh, human behavior that goes back in time, back to, you know, way back to the Bronze Age or I I even earlier, where the behaviors tend to be the same, where the dominant hierarchies have always somebody on the top, uh, sitting on the top, controlling the resources, usually in a way that basically appropriates religious belief to create a cult. And even the architecture is all, almost always the same. Mm. Citadels where gravity basically is your, is, is, your, is your competitive advantage. So you go back to the past, but really it's about the present. And here's, here's my point. So you're watching the world around you and you see behaviors and you, and you say to yourself, okay, oh, that's really interesting that that's happening now. That reminds me of that historical event way back in time. The kind of behaviors we're seeing now haven't really changed despite our, our sense of the world. You know, technologically we're advancing. We've got much more privilege than we had in the past compared to what we, you know, just look at me medically in, in, in the Western world. I mean, most of us would be dead now. Uh, a huge, huge number of people would be dead now just for the want of antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, you know, how many times have you had an infection or poisoning when you were a child? Uh, you know, I had blood poisoning. I would have been gone in the past. You know, treated within, you know, when I was a kid, I was treated, you know, within days I was back on my feet. In the past, I wouldn't be like it just so. So there are advantages. Okay, so what, what's happening, it's very, very hard not to think of these stories because they're very seductive. It's a way of looking at the world, comparing it to the past, and having characters which give you a portal into that world because that's why we tell stories. They are a way of making a chaotic world more coherent than the randomness. So, so my answer is, it's hard not to think of those characters, but I'm not thinking of terms, oh, let's do a spin-off or anything. It's just that I've described it as very Darwinian. There's all this stuff banging around in your head, and some of the stories are way more insistent than others. And the reason being is because they have more resonance. They have more, yeah, more, more iceberg under the tip than others. They tick more boxes. They seem to conform more to my sort of, groping for understanding about what story is about. Yeah. It's not really how to tell stories. It's why do we tell each other stories? What's the purpose of story? Which is basically the fundamental question of my life. I think ultimately most of our lives, we make the world coherent by the narratives. You explain your lives and everybody in your life in terms of the stories you tell about them, you know? birthday parties and funerals and weddings, it's all stories. And, and some of them are epic stories, you know, the, the story of science, the, the narrative of human science is a phenomenal story. I mean, 20th century physics. We are talking now because of Newton and Einstein. Yeah. And, and it's real time. And you're on the other side of the world from me. Now, that narrative, is probably the greatest creative achievement of humankind. As you, as you can tell, I give very, very long elliptical answers. Well, the way I see it, you've got all of these different stories to tell, and if time ever becomes a crunch, you can always go over to Mark Sexton's desk and slap down a story and say, write another comic so Rick can read it. Yes, well, <laughs> well Mark, you know, Mark is very impressive because he, I don't know if you know, but he started off as a scientist. Mm -hmm. So he's got that creativity with that very, very rigorous scientific mind. And, and, and yeah, he's able to do it. He, he's, the one, he's the one who sort of keeps on pulling me up and saying, wait a minute, that's not consistent with this or that. Because he, he, has, that, he has that rigor. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to do some more comics, actually. There's so much material there. And Mark took that, took that on you know, despite having to do a lot of other things. He, he and Nick are the mm. And uh, it, was, it, it was really good. Yeah, so that's what I'll do, actually.
good idea. He's busy at the moment working on Marvel films. Right. Maybe when he finishes that. I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know you've got a busy day ahead of you, but I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for doing everything that you do. I may not have some sort of tribal dance to gift you with in exchange for the <laughs> stories that you've told, but I guess all I have to offer is the podcast that I've done. And I'm really looking forward to what you have coming down the pike. You've got 3,000 years of longing that you're going to start production on in March yeah. and then whatever else in the future. So I, from me to you, best of luck, break a leg. I, yeah. We're pulling for you over <laughs> the other oh, side of the world. There's no other way I can put it. Yeah. Thanks very much, Rick. And please thank Julia as well. I mean, I, I, I was, um, you know, I, I said I was honored, but it really is because as I described it, the Herculean task that you guys took on to actually look at something minute by minute and really, you know, you honoured the work. I mean, you basically really, you, you taught me about our own work and, and that's, a, that's a big thing and, uh, you know, I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, certainly, and, and uh, you know, your, your audience. So thank you very much. It's, it's, if you do end up making another Mad Max movie, that'll give us a season five. So we're intrinsically linked at this point. All right. Okay. All right. And then, <laughs> then I'll get really self-conscious because what? <laughs> if I do that, what will they say about it in the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so once again, thank you so much, George. You have a lovely rest of your day. Yeah, sent, sent you. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for this extra episode. We'll see you next time.